You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 140, The Battle of Short Hills. A few weeks ago, in episode 134, I discussed the British raid on Boundbrook, New Jersey, on April 13, 1777. General Cornwallis had led 4,000 British and Hessians against an American outpost of about 500 Continentals along the Raritan River, hoping to net some prisoners. The British raided the town and took some prisoners, but the bulk of the Continental outpost escaped capture. The Americans retook the post that day, but after a few weeks determined that the isolated outpost was prone to another attack. Washington moved them back a few miles to Middlebrook, which was up in the Wachung Mountains, where defensive lines would be easier to hold. No one on the Continental side was quite sure what British General William Howe planned to do next. To be fair, most of the officers in the British Army were equally left in the dark, as to their commander's plans. Howe still might move northward to link up with the planned British thrust from Canada under General Johnny Burgoyne. Howe might also attempt to move on Philadelphia. Everyone sat around waiting for a spring offensive to begin. But spring turned into summer while the British Army still sat in New York City and its defensive outposts around the city without any clear indication of movement. On June 9, 1777, General Howe finally moved most of his army out of New York City and Staten Island to Amboy in New Jersey. A couple of days later, the army marched along the banks of the Raritan River. They marched past Boundbrook, the area abandoned by the Continentals a few weeks earlier. The British encamped at Brunswick. After camping there for three days, on June 14th, the British once again packed up and marched to Somerset Courthouse, within easy sight of the Americans. This was more than just a large raid. Howe put about 20,000 British and Hessians on the march, leaving only a small force to protect New York City itself. The column marched south of Washington's defensive position, apparently moving toward Philadelphia. If Washington wanted to confront Howe, he would have to leave his defensive position in the mountains and attack the regulars on the same land where Howe's army had chased the Continentals the year before. In truth, though, Howe had no plans to march his army to Philadelphia. The whole movement had been a feint to see if the British could draw the Americans out of their defenses into an open fight. It would not work. General Washington had received intelligence that Howe had left behind his heavy baggage and equipment needed to cross the Delaware River. 
He deduced that the British were not headed to Philadelphia, but were looking for a fight on their own terms against the smaller Continental force. Therefore, the Americans stayed in the hills where the British dared not attack. After camping at Somerset Courthouse for five days and daring the Americans to attack, Howe packed up and returned to Amboy. As the British pulled back, the Continentals finally came down out of the mountains to shadow the retreating regulars. Washington was convinced that the British withdrawal meant the immediate danger had passed. He allowed some of his local militia to return home and began to deploy his Continentals across the plains to show that the Americans once again controlled New Jersey. General Howe had already ferried much of his army back to Staten Island. As he was in the process of moving over the remainder, an American deserter informed him that the Continentals had finally moved down out of the mountains. Upon being alerted to this, Howe turned around his column and rushed back to engage the Americans. He began moving his soldiers back to New Jersey after dark on June 25th, beginning around 10 p.m. By about 1 a.m. on June 26th, the army was in formation and ready to march. Howe moved his army north in two columns in a night raid. Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis led one column. Major General John Vaughn commanded the other. General Howe personally went with the column commanded by Vaughn. By moving north, the British hoped to circle around Washington's left flank and get between the Continentals and the mountains. This would force the Americans to fight on an open field or retreat back toward Philadelphia. Of course, I've talked about Howe and Cornwallis before. The other commander in this action, General John Vaughn, was also a veteran of the war. He just hasn't been prominent enough in any role for me to mention him yet. As with most British generals, Vaughn came from aristocracy. He was the son of the third Viscount Lisburn. Not the firstborn, though, so he would not inherit his father's land or titles. Instead, Dad purchased him an officer's commission and sent him off on a career in the military beginning in 1746. It's not exactly clear how old he was since the date of his birth is unknown, but he was probably a young teenager at the time. He joined while the British were still fighting the War of Austrian Succession, but there's no record of him serving in combat in that war. Following the war's end, Vaughn received several peacetime promotions, almost certainly with the assistance of his family's money. When the Seven Years' War began, Vaughn served with distinction leading grenadiers in both Germany and Martinique. By the end of the war, he had risen to lieutenant colonel. In 1772, another peacetime commission to full colonel, and two years later, an election to parliament, established him as a member of the British elite. He generally backed the policies of the prime minister, but did not speak much in parliament. In 1776, while retaining his seat in the British parliament, he also won a seat in the Irish Parliament. Vaughan's political service and military experience did not go unnoticed. When the ministry needed willing officers to go to America, it promoted Vaughan to Major General and sent him with the forces dispatched under General Cornwallis to recapture the southern colonies. 
Vaughn was present at the Battle of Fort Sullivan in 1776, but I'm not sure that he did anything of note there. Eventually, his forces, then under the command of General Clinton, sailed up to New York City to meet up with General Howe. Once there, everyone came under General Howe's command as he launched the campaign to recapture New York. Vaughn led his grenadiers at the Battle of Long Island. He also landed a force at Kipps Bay and fought at White Plains, where he was wounded in the thigh. He quickly recovered, though, and was ready to lead men into battle once again in the spring of 1777. General Howe selected him to lead his army into the field along with General Cornwallis. Like Cornwallis, Vaughn was a general on the rise, someone upon whom General Howe could rely. The two British columns marched to cut off the Continentals. Washington, though, had prepared for this. He sent General Lord Sterling to protect the Continental left flank and prevent just such a maneuver as Howe had planned. Lord Sterling is also an interesting character that I should probably introduce. William Alexander, as was his common name, was born in New York in 1726. His father was a prominent lawyer who served on the governor's council and held several other government positions. His father had come to New York a decade before William was born after his participation in the Jacobite Rising of 1715. More worried about losing his head for treason, William's father never tried to claim his father's title of Earl of Stirling after the death of William's grandfather. Upon his father's death, though, William tried to reclaim this title. He retained lawyers in Scotland and got a Scottish court to recognize his claim in 1759. The Scottish ruling, however, was not enough for Alexander. He petitioned the British House of Lords to recognize his claim as well. The House of Lords looked into it, decided the claim was dubious, and rejected it. William Alexander would not be Lord Stirling. Alexander, though, would not let the House of Lords deny who he was. He told himself, Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Alexander knew he was born a lord. So whatever the House of Lords said in London, Alexander called himself Lord Sterling and expected others to address him as such. Despite the controversy over his title, Lord Sterling had inherited a fair amount of wealth and property from his father. He built a large estate in New Jersey and lived a rather lavish lifestyle. He was also an early proponent of the Patriot cause. Several months after Lexington and Concord, Sterling formed a New Jersey militia regiment, which he led as its colonel. He used his personal money to outfit the new regiment. Shortly thereafter, he gained attention when his regiment captured a small British transport ship in New York Harbor. In March 1776, as the war began to pivot to New York, Congress appointed Sterling a brigadier general. He performed with conspicuous bravery at the Battle of Long Island, standing against an overwhelming British assault to buy time for the rest of the Continental Army to retreat back to the defenses along the Hudson River. The British captured Sterling during his defense, but rather quickly exchanged him for Montrose Brown, the governor of the Bahamas. 
recall that the Continental Navy had taken Brown prisoner during its raid in the spring of 1776. Sterling returned in time to join General Washington in crossing the Delaware River and attacking Trenton. His leadership in the Forage War only improved his reputation as a fierce fighter and daring leader. Based on Sterling's experience in battle, Congress promoted him to Major General in February 1777. Washington, at this point, was relying on Sterling to protect the Army's flank against a British attack. General Sterling commanded a force of about 2,500 men. Serving under General Sterling were a few other notable officers. General William Maxwell also served under Sterling. Maxwell was the only other Continental general from New Jersey until the end of the war. I gave some background on Maxwell back in episode 124, so I won't repeat myself, but by this time he had only been a general for a few months and was looking to be tested in battle. Also serving under Sterling was Colonel Daniel Morgan. You may recall that Morgan had been serving under General Montgomery at Quebec. When Montgomery died in the first volley in the invasion of Quebec, Morgan took command and invaded the city, only to be taken prisoner himself. Morgan rotted in a Quebec jail for about nine months when he was finally paroled in September 1776. But his parole required that he not resume any command until traded for an officer of equal rank. So Morgan had to sit around in timeout during the whole retreat from New Jersey as well as the crossing of the Delaware and the battles of Trenton and Princeton. Finally, in January 1777, the Americans had captured some more British officers and were able to trade one of them for Morgan. They also then told Morgan that he was promoted to full colonel and put him in charge of a regiment that included his riflemen. Morgan had just assumed his new command in April, less than two months earlier. General Thomas Conway also served under Sterling. Conway was born in Ireland and grew up in France. He had served in the French Army since the age of 14, rising to the rank of colonel. Conway was one of those first French officers who received a promise of a generalship from the American agents in Paris and who sailed over to America. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago as part of the effort to involve France in the war. Conway presented himself to the Continental Congress and received a rank of Brigadier General in the Continental Army on May 13th. Washington apparently was not happy about getting foreign officers who he had to promote over his own increasingly experienced officer corps. That said, Washington's recognition of civilian authority obligated him to accede to the will of Congress. Less than a week later, Washington appointed this stranger to the command of the Pennsylvania Brigade. Within a month, Washington deployed Conway under Lord Sterling against the British. Lord Sterling deployed his Continentals over a wide area. His purpose was to detect any enemy movements in order to give the main army under Washington time to react. As both Cornwallis's column and Vaughn's column moved north, they encountered Continental skirmishers around dawn. Night marching was slow and difficult. The columns had moved only about three miles inland by dawn. Around 6 a.m., they encountered some of Colonel Morgan's riflemen. About 150 American riflemen 
engaged in a running battle against 250 British riflemen who were using some of the new experimental breech-loading Ferguson rifles. The Americans fell back in good order, linking up with about 700 Pennsylvania German-speaking militia who were under the command of General Maxwell. This force put up a credible defense until the main British column of about 12,000 men began to descend on their position. The Americans again began to pull back. The withdrawal, though, was part of Sterling's larger plan to draw the British into a position where he wanted to fight, an area near Scotch Plains. There, Sterling had set up defensive positions, making use of his riflemen and several artillery pieces to hold against the advancing British forces. This is the area that became known as the Battle of Short Hills. The early morning battle between these forces saw some of the most intense fighting of the day. Bearing the brunt of the fighting were Germans. Hessian units serving under Cornwallis attacked a large force of German-speaking Pennsylvania militia. General Maxwell was nearly captured, and Lord Sterling himself had a horse shot out from under him. Although the Continentals fought well and had a good position, they could not hold out for long. Sterling's 2,500 men faced off against about 16,000 British and Hessians, who were also backed up by artillery. The columns descended on the Continental positions, leading to a heavy firefight. After a short time, though, the Continental forces had to retreat. They did so while maintaining good order and keeping a rate of fire against the advancing British. The attack became a running battle over several miles. As the British advanced, they destroyed a great many homes and property. Among the British combat officers that day was Bannister Tarleton, the man who had captured General Lee months earlier. Tarleton had a reputation for being especially ruthless in destroying civilian property and killing enemy soldiers who were trying to surrender. Also fighting that day was John Andre. As you may recall, Lieutenant Andre had been captured at Fort St. Jean in 1775. He spent over a year as a prisoner living in Pennsylvania, before finally being exchanged in December 1776. Now promoted to captain, Andre was back in combat and eager to prove himself. There is a popular local story about a woman named Elizabeth Frazee, whose husband was fighting with the New Jersey militia. Elizabeth had been baking bread all morning at her farm in Scotch Plains to help feed the American soldiers. Around noon, General Cornwallis's soldiers captured the farm and Cornwallis requested the bread for his soldiers. Frazee told the general that she would only give the bread out of fear and that she supported the Patriot cause. Cornwallis ordered that the army would not take her bread and that she would not be harmed. Sterling's defense did its job. General Washington was alerted to the battle as early as 7 a.m. As Sterling engaged the British columns, Washington moved his main force back up into the mountains where the British dared not attack. Sterling kept the British occupied as he pulled back in his running retreat to Middlebrook, also up in the mountains. There, the defensive position stopped the British advance. Late in the day, General Howe arrived at the front lines to inspect the battle. He judged the American defenses to be too strong in the mountains. 
Remember, the British had begun their march as a night raid the day before. Most of the men had been awake for two days straight. They had marched through a brutal summer heat wave and fought a pitched running battle with the Continentals. They simply could not continue at this pace. The British spent the night in the field, marching back to Amboy the following morning. The British reported that they killed or wounded about a hundred Americans and also captured another seventy. They also captured three American brass field cannon. In exchange, they reported only five killed and thirty wounded. These lopsided numbers, though, may not be accurate. As I've said before, British reports often exaggerate enemy casualties and minimize their own. For example, they often only reported British casualties and ignored Hessian casualties. Another unofficial report indicates that at least 70 British and Hessians were killed. This seems a more realistic outcome for a multi-hour battle where soldiers were charging cannons and being harassed all day by expert riflemen. Lord Sterling's battle and casualty report to Washington has been lost. However, a later report to the Continental Congress reported only 20 Americans killed and 40 wounded. The Americans did not pursue the retreating British again, but allowed them to pull back to Amboy. By early July, the British pulled out of New Jersey completely, pulling all their forces back into a defensive posture along the New York side of the Hudson River. Washington and the Continentals once again settled into a defensive posture and waited to see what General Howe and his army would do next. The Battle of Short Hills was considered a tactical victory for the British. They took the field and forced the Americans to withdraw. However, it was really a strategic victory for the Americans. Howe was unable to engage with the Continental Army and take it out of commission as he wanted. Without doing that, he was unwilling to attempt another occupation of New Jersey. Following this conflict, General Howe would put the conquest of New Jersey on the back burner and focus on getting to Philadelphia another way. Next week, we head back to the Continental Congress as they approve the American flag and take care of other business. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks again to Tyson France, who supports the show at the Robert Morris Circle level on Patreon.com. 
Tyson runs the website Liberty & Co., where he sells all sorts of cool items related to the American Revolution and the founding of the country. If you want to check out his website, go to libertyand.co. There is also a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. If on Tyson's site you use the checkout code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, you get an extra 20% off your order. Tyson has also been a big help with History Camp Philadelphia, which is coming May 2nd, 2020. Tyson developed the logo for the camp and for the t-shirts. If you're considering going to History Camp Philadelphia, I'd advise you ordering your tickets soon. It looks like we may sell out the venue well ahead of time. Go to historycamp.org for more details. Speaking of History Camp, the same week that this podcast releases, I will be at History Camp Boston, where I'm appearing on a panel discussion about using new media to present history. Or, to put it simply, why I think history podcasting is a good thing. I will be presenting with a few other great panelists, including J.L. Bell of the Boston 1775 blog, Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World, Jason Mandrish, creator of founderoftheday.com, Ed O'Donnell from In the Past Lane podcast, Jake Sconiers of the Hub History podcast, and Susan Stevenson of the American Epistles podcast. I hope it'll be a great discussion and well worth the 16-hour round-trip bus ride to Boston. In this week's episode, British General William Howe engages in his final large-scale action in New Jersey. After failing to draw the Continental Army into a general action, Howe puts his army aboard ships and is going to head off for Philadelphia. I mentioned in passing the British use of Ferguson rifles during this battle. This is one of the earliest breech-loading rifles ever made. If you're not into ordnance, a breech-loading rifle means that you load the ammunition from the back rather than having to shove it down the barrel. Now, why does this matter? Well, this gets back to why soldiers use muskets instead of rifles during this period. After all, a musket only has an effective range of 40 or 50 yards. A rifle is good for 200 to 400 yards, depending on the rifle and the marksman. So, wouldn't accuracy be a good thing? Both sides did have rifle units, but most soldiers continued to use muskets. A big reason for the preference of muskets was the higher rate of fire. An experienced soldier can fire three or four times each minute when using a musket. With a rifle, each shot can take one or two minutes. A rifle ball also needs to be the same size as the barrel in order to get the spin that gives it the accuracy when it comes out of the barrel. This makes it harder to push down the barrel, hence the longer period of time in loading. But also, the rifle gets fired maybe half a dozen times during a battle, a residue builds up inside the barrel from the gunpowder. This makes it impossible to fire again until the owner cleans the rifle, which obviously cannot be done in the middle of a battle. So that takes the rifle out of commission pretty quickly in a battle that lasts more than a few minutes. 
Since the musket ball is not tight-fitting against the barrel, it can continue to be loaded as long as needed. What Ferguson did to solve this problem is loading the ball from the back. No more having to push the ball down the barrel, making it load much faster and eliminating the problem of residue preventing reloading. Therefore, the Ferguson rifle gave soldiers the best of both worlds. The accurate rifle fire at several hundred yards, plus a rate of fire that was actually better than a musket, four to six shots per minute. So why, you may ask, did both armies continue to use a musket? Well, for starters, the Ferguson rifle was much more expensive to manufacture. The final cost of the product was about four times as expensive as a musket. You needed very highly skilled people to build one, and it took them a long time to do so. Until the manufacturing methods of the Industrial Revolution made this more economical, the breech-loading rifle did not become a common-use weapon. It would be another century before they came into common use. Let's face it, at this time period, the men were cheaper than the weapons, so better to have more weapons and more men than fewer men holding much more expensive weapons. So the Ferguson rifle really was a gun before its time. If you want to read more about the Ferguson rifle, well, you're in luck, because this week's book recommendation is just about that very topic. It's called Every Insult and Indignity, The Life, Genius, and Legacy of Major Patrick Ferguson, by Ricky Roberts and Brian Brown. Despite the title, this book is more about the Ferguson rifle than Major Ferguson the man. The book is relatively short, at just over 200 pages, and the last third of that is appendices and index. But there's plenty packed in there to tell you everything you would want to know about the Ferguson rifle. The authors, Roberts and Brown, are both longtime reenactors and black powder gun enthusiasts. This book is the result of their lifetime of interest in this weapon. The book was independently published in 2011 and is also available for the Kindle. So if you have an interest in the history of weaponry, you really want to check out The Life, Genius, and Legacy of Major Patrick Ferguson. For my online recommendation this week, I want to take a closer look at the American general, William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling. Now, Lord Sterling takes some pretty key roles throughout the course of the war, but is largely ignored by historians. Perhaps part of that is because he died of an illness near the end of the war and did not play any role in the post-war peace. If you want to read more about his life, there's a pretty good but short biography available on archive.org. It's an ebook written in 1897 by Ludwig Schumacher called Major General the Earl of Sterling, an essay in biography. As I said, it's a short book, only about 50 pages. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. 
Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, but it gives a good overview of the man's life. And if you want to read more about Sterling, this is an interesting read. As always, you can search for it on archive.org, or you can use the direct link that I have on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>